2: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. This is show number 16. I'm recording this on the road today, so my apologies for any inferior sound quality issues you may experience. I'm visiting the charming village of Tienen en Hooggaarden in Belgium. None of which is any of your problem, of course. It's time to sit back, relax. And listen to some stories. Our first story today is a haunting tale by Anne Awomoyela called Of Men and Wolves. Anne is a Noitrois author with a background in web development, linguistics, and weaving chainmail out of stainless steel fencing wire, whose fiction has appeared in a number of venues, including Clarksworld, Asimov's, Lightspeed, and a handful of years' bests. Anne's interests range from pulsars and Cepheid variables to gender studies and non-standard pronouns, with a plethora of stops in between. C can be found online at on.awomoyela.net and can be funded by following the link on our F website. It is narrated for us today by Rish Outfield. Rish is a writer, actor and podcaster who can be heard as host of the dune Steve Audio Fiction magazine, which presents genre stories with a full cast. He also performs audiobooks for Audible, and occasionally becomes a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the moon is full and bright. Pop over to com and have a listen. It's really great. And so, here it is. Of Men and Wolves by On Awomoyella
2: I woke with salt on my face, ghost trails of the night's tears. My skin was cold. Even my back was cold where my husband should have rested. He was gone, and I should have enjoyed that aloneness. Instead, a noise from the veranda roused me, a soft scuffle against the swept clay, coupling with wet, insistent sounds. It turned my stomach. I pulled my bed-dress tight around me and went out. The sun had yet to rise. In the dim light, A furred body hunched against the ground, jaws working in my husband's back. Blood had scattered around them, arrayed in a half-halo. Yellow eyes glinted, and I froze in the manner of deer. While I slept, this beast had come and ripped out my husband's throat. So ended my first night in the city of wolves. Even knowing better than to run from wolves, I leapt from the porch, like an oryx, and ran so the stone streets bruised my heels. There is no god but God. The Odad, my husband's people, worshipped wolves and stars, and this godless abandoned city, and now my husband was dead. I came breathless to the gates, where our donkeys were tethered, uneaten. The wolves had not considered them fitting sacrifices. They had not considered me a fitting sacrifice. Only the prince of the Odad, my husband, would sate them. I went to Nashira, my donkey, and rubbed my hands over her muzzle, her neck. Her name meant, She Who Brings Good News. The sandalwood rubbed into her black hide, the musk of her skin and the steadiness of her body calmed me. But there was no point in worshipping animals, and she could not help me. I looked to the horizon, the half-sun, caught in the act of rising, sat like a red coal, and a howl came up from the city to bid the stars farewell. That wolf should have eaten me instead. But I had run from the wolf, so perhaps I wanted to live. Even after my husband smeared me through with tallow and aloe, even after he pushed himself inside me, I wanted to live. "'and I wanted my people to live. "'I had to act. "'Nashira,' I said, "'with my fist beneath her chin, "'asking her to rise. "'I untethered her "'as our shadows crept toward us, "'and I mounted and goaded her "'through the city gates. "'This evening, men of Odad "'would see that we had not returned "'from our wedding night. "'Noon after, they would come to this city "'whose sandstone was the colour "'of their pale skin.' "'They would find me here, their prince dead. "'They would ride against my people. "'Unless I could appease them. "'The city smelled of dust and the sun. "'My skin still smelled of unguents, cardamom and myrrh. "'If we'd brought myrrh in the wedding packs, "'I could anoint my husband's remains. "'If the city had wood or charcoal, I could build him a pyre. "'And if the wolves ate me while I gathered the body and coal?' they might be kinder than the Odad. The wolves fell silent, and the city's streets were empty. A wisp of cloud hung in the sky before the sun burned it away. Who sent it out to die at dawn? And who decided that I, who should have been the fifth son of Sal, should ride a little black donkey to an abattoir, to carry a ripped-up man to the city gates to burn him? His name? That prince of the Odad was aishur We'd passed the wide and empty lanes of the market district when a wolf leapt into the path and Nishira shied. My heart kicked once, twice, like a hare. The wolf bowed, shoulders low, tail swimming side to side behind him. He called up to us, Koof! Koof! The way the palace dog said, Play with me, and bounded away. Neshira tossed, her hooves clattered, and she tried to break. I put my hands over her eyes. Wolf-God! I had nothing to lose. At worst, he would eat me, or the true God would smite me for blasphemy. God had never looked kindly on my life before. Come back, and when you come, bring me my husband. Or his bloody bones. The wolf didn't return. Nashira would not walk. I dismounted and looked around. I found a caravanserai and cajoled her into a stall and barred the gate. I'd carry Aisha's body with my own hands if I had to. The sun had climbed two finger widths up the sky, and though the shade felt like water on my skin, I moved on. The streets widened as I neared the temple of our wedding night. The city's roads were a great wheel whose struts led to the city walls, in whose hub stood this temple nearly so old as our two tribes. Flies swarmed in the temple air like handfuls of thrown peppercorns, landing on my husband's corpse and jumping from it. The corpse lay supine, not eaten up yet, not unrecognisable. My stomach turned, but I resolved to be as strong as my brother's, "'and I went to Aisha's side. "'I touched his flesh. "'Life had been ripped from the hands which had cupped me, "'the arms which had held me. "'Aisha's stomach had been ripped out, "'though I remembered it whole and sweating against my back. "'His genitals had been ripped off, his thighs opened. "'He stank of iron and bile. "'I swatted the flies away. "'A few attempted my eyes, and I swatted them again.' "'I took Aisha's wrists and dragged his carcass, "'and it was both heavy and light, "'heavy because I had never grown to the girth of my brothers, "'never been trained in the strength of a man, "'light because the wolves had torn much of him away. "'I could see his spine, his ribs, "'one red scapula turning like the wing of a bird. "'I tugged him toward the door, "'and a wolf trotted in, yellow eyes wide, Was he the one who had bowed to me? He was thin, and his bones protruded. He whined. Aisha and I hadn't seen wolves when we came at the setting of the sun. Aisha's father and grandfather and every ancestor had taken their wives outside the city gates, and they had come back uneaten. Aisha pulled me inside and said these walls and these wolves and this starlight were his ancestors too, and would not harm him. In that far-off history, when my people were stronger than the O'Dad and had chased them across the desert, they had called to God to save them. God had turned a quarter of the O'Dad into wolves, who had torn the sal apart. The wolves were protectors of the O'Dad. They would not see him harmed. This wolf whined and swept his tail across the ground. A black band lay across his shoulders like a whip-mark, and when his tail moved, his hip-bones poked out, one flank and then the other. I dropped Aisha's wrists. "'If you would like,' I said. The wolf was clever. He understood me. He trotted to Aisha's side, licked him, and tore flesh from his chest. I choked, deep near my lungs, and turned away. "'I ask forgiveness of Almighty God.' "'I could look at his body torn apart. "'So why not bear the tearing? "'I covered my ears. "'How I must have looked in the harsh light, "'my beddress smeared with blood, "'a wolf breaking his fast on my husband's chest. "'I stood with my palms on my ears, "'whispering the religious rubayat. "'For sixty-one verses the wolf ate, "'and then he came and nuzzled at my knee. "'I dropped my hands and he wagged his tail and let his bloody tongue loll out. Ancha, I said. It meant hip-bone. His hip bones stuck out like the top of a lyre, even now, with his belly full. I could play the lyre, but not well, and I wouldn't have the chance if the O'Dad killed me and my family. Or once the wolves killed me and ate me. While Ancha ate, another wolf had come from the inner halls, He was much larger, sleek and well-fed. Perhaps he'd killed Aisha. Perhaps for stealing his dinner he'd kill me. He stepped forward and showed his teeth. Ancha yipped and took my hand in his mouth. He tugged without breaking my skin, and then let go and rolled onto his back with his paws tucked against his chest. The new wolf came closer, tail straight behind him. Ancha whined. "'and kicked at my shin. "'I went to my knees, "'then to my back. "'Even dogs have kings, "'and even dogs bow to them. "'I pulled my hands to my chest, "'and the big wolf came up to me "'and lapped his tongue across my neck, "'my chest, my stomach. "'It wasn't until he "'pushed his head between my legs, "'where I had touched me "'before wrapping me over my knees, "'that I shook. "'This new wolf snorted, Anansha pushed his nose against my cheek, and grief and anger and shame battered inside my chest, pushing me to cry. I named him Malik, King. When I tried to take Aisha, he growled and backed me outside, where the sun had climbed the length of my hand. Three more lengths, and it would stand in what we called the liver of the sky. Then, in that time again, soldiers would leave from the Odad. I walked toward the gate, hoping to eat something and clear my head. Ancha walked with me, swishing his tail and licking from time to time at my hand. I thought of two things before reaching the Caravanserai, riding back to my people, warning them to take up arms for a battle they could not win. Or perhaps I should find weapons here and throw myself against the soldiers when they came. Either battle was hopeless. O God, most merciful! What else could I do? The O'Dad would ride here, under the watchful eyes of the stars. When the wolves in that far-off history had torn my people apart, the O'Dad had cried then that they could not find their way. God turned a second quarter of their number into stars to guide them. Even the stars would be against me. "'In the caravanserai I found Nashira backed into a stall by two wolves. "'I ran in, but—no, she wasn't backed in. "'She sat placidly, and the wolves sat facing each other before her. "'I swear before God that they argued like men at market. "'One would goof, and then the other, then the first. "'Then they beheld me and looked at Ancha "'and by agreement stood and walked to another side of the room. "'I knew wolves. "'They hunted in packs by the edge of my city. "'But I had never seen wolves, as these did, "'cross the room and sit down, talking in turns. "'Eager not to tarry, I led Nashira out toward the city gates. "'Ancha followed. "'I thought of standing at the gates and yelling, "'Look here, you men of Odad!' It was your God and not mine who ate your prince. Your God and not mine who would not let me burn or bury him. But what man listens when another maligns his God? The Odad worshipped idols, but they were not forgiving in their unrighteousness. I set out barley for the donkeys, took dried goat and buttermilk from the provisions they'd carried, and looked up at the pale grey walls. The Odad, forever ungrateful, had still cried after the gifts of the wolves and the stars. They had cried that they had no place to rest, nowhere to keep out the harsh sun, and God turned the third quarter of their people into the city which stood before me. The stone was the color of their flesh. The walls were as heavy on the eyes as their broad shoulders had been. God-houses sat on the walls, unused since their creation, "'perhaps they might have bows left, or javelins. "'I knew little of weaponry, but what choice did I have? "'I sought a stairway, uncha following at my heels. "'Perhaps I could keep uncha with me, "'and the Odad would see that I was favoured among their gods. "'But the Odad have wanted to destroy my people, "'and now that we were weak, they were over-eager. "'Men eager for war will ignore their gods.' even as they say God wills it. And besides, if Ansha was a god, he was a poor one. Even having eaten of Aisha, he was begging after the goat. Then, begging, he pushed his muzzle between my legs. I cursed and shoved him away. He tumbled down the stairs, yelping, and I gathered my dress and hurried on without him. What did it matter to him, what I had or didn't have down there? "'It was only a concern for my father, the king, "'who'd needed a daughter to offer, "'only a concern for his surgeons and their sharp knives, "'and for Aisha. "'I ran to the guard-house and threw open the door. "'Here there were no knives, I noted, "'nor weapons of any kind. "'Only the dusty sun cut the dry monotony of sandstone and clay, "'neither bow nor arrow, javelin nor lance.' I walked to the window, and looked out. No paths led to this city. Only the princes of the Odad came here, dragging their brides along. There was no road which the search party would ride down. I would be able to stand here, and watch the plumes of dust heralding their advent, if I chose. And then I would die. Uncha whined at the door. In the night, long ago, as the O'Dad slept in the body-houses of their kinsmen, as the stars looked down on them, the wolves came and chased them from their home. Since that day, the city stood abandoned. Ancha crept into the guardhouse. The O'Dad have a saying. They say, if you go into the house of God, and drink, and kick the walls, and shout and swear, God will eat you. If you are pious, and bow at every entrance, and bring good wine for oblations, God will eat you. Men have no business in the house of God. I had no business there either. I took the water-skin, and threw it from the door. It burst on a roof below. "'Come up, stones!' I yelled, and they jeered my voice back at me. "'There's to be a war, you know!' Isn't it the Sal you've wanted to destroy all these years? Isn't that why your wolves ate my husband? The echoes died, and the bitterness faded from the air. Perhaps it was just that the city hated everyone, Odad and Sal alike. Ancha pressed against my shins. I looked down at him, and my hand found his ears. He suffered from mange as well as malnutrition. What a poor! afflicted god the odad spent one night in this city before the wolves chased him out the odad went and hid at the crook of a river worshipping the city from afar only their princes returned with their brides and only I walked the streets wondering if the sacrificed ghosts of the city stared from every window waiting to crowd around me and steal the breath from my throat how horrible to have your body unmade "'at the order of your king.' Aisha sure had done the unthinkable when he agreed to marry me, "'to take a maid-daughter as a bride, when his kingdom was the stronger. "'He could have refused. "'He would have spared my people in exchange for the honour of marrying me. "'I brought wine and honey when I returned to the temple.' I brought the goat meat and dried figs and the cream Aisha had poured into skins to be rendered to butter by the ride. I brought the apricots we had been given and the bread and the rose-scented marriage cake. And I even brought Nashira, who had not been groomed or dressed for a sacrifice. This was all I had. I walked into the cool air, the scent of blood and the buzzing of flies. Aisha's bones were gone. His blood made a smear to the door where Malik stood, his head held high. Ancha tucked his tail down, creeping to Malik. Malik raised his chin to look at me, as if to say, Do you see? And Ancha licked his muzzle, his lips, his throat. I thought of Aisha kissing my father on each of his cheeks. I offered food and wine. I thought I would try to tame the beast, only tame him. This was not a sacrifice, Malik not a god. Still, I asked God to forgive me. Give me my husband's bones, I asked, or come to the gates when your Odad arrive. Speak for me. If you are anything but beasts, I implore you, take these gifts, take my donkey, take me, but see that my people are spared. Malik came and snapped up my offerings in one bite, Two, three, four, five. He lapped up the butter, then the wine. Honcha whimpered, but his tail wagged. Malik walked out, leaving the dishes, putting the wine-skin over my shoulder. I followed. He led me to the priest's quarters, where Aisha's remains lay in state. A wide line of blood led from the outer halls like a carpet. I felt a pressure like... Tears, which could not be tears, against the closure of my throat. I wanted him to stand, alive and uneaten, before me. I shall lay on a bed of ancient linen, coated with wolf fur. His face was still uneaten, though it was mottled as though bruised. His foot had knocked over a jar of lamp-oil, and it pooled around his legs. I wished Malik would let me burn his body. Now it would be easy. I took two fire-starting stones from a shelf but Malik growled to warn me against setting his meal alight. I raised my hands and laid the rocks between Aisha's legs stones to replace the stones torn off. Then I regretted being so cruel. The body smelled. I turned away. Malik still growled behind me and Ancha took my hand to pull me out. Outside "'with the sun lashing my back. "'I knelt and called God by fifty of the hundred names. "'God is my refuge.' "'I put my head to the ground. "'I ask clemency of Almighty God. "'I tried not to think of Aisha pushing me into this position, "'my thighs beneath my chest, buttocks on my heels. "'Aisha!' "'He had looked at me with longing, half woman that I was. "'Before we left his palace,' The dry nurse for his cousin's child stopped me and said, You should be honoured by him. She meant that women like me were no better than yous, and he shouldn't have treated me so well. Well, what did I care for how well he was to treat me? I looked back to see Malik watching me from the door, mouth gaping as Uncher's did. Perhaps he was smiling, but I did not risk those teeth. I stood. AND THOUGHT OF Aisha WHY SHOULD I HAVE THOUGHT OF Aisha? MY MIND RETURNED, LIKE A DOG TO HIS DINNER, TO OUR MARRIAGE NIGHT. WHEN WE HAD DISENTANGLED, I HAD SHAKEN IN ATTEMPTS NOT TO WEEP. AISHER HAD PRESSED HIS LIPS TO MY SHOULDER, AND SAID THAT I WAS BEAUTIFUL. LIAR! WHO WAS HE TO CALL ME BEAUTIFUL? WHO WAS I TO HEAR THOSE WORDS? I didn't want to be beautiful or to have him inside me. He whispered at my neck, and I went tense. I wanted to stifle him or vomit. He slept, and I could no more push him from my mind than I could push away the arms encircling me. I hated him. I ask forgiveness. I hated him. I hated every part of him, from the skin which was pale like the belly of a dog to the scent of his sweat "'sweet like fermenting bread. "'I hated his hands on my hip, on my chest, "'and I hated that he had died in the night "'and would not stand here in this accursed city with me. "'I hated that the Odad would spill my people's blood "'as surely as Malik spilled him. "'And I hated his death here, beneath these stars, "'as surely as I should have hated a life with him. "'He didn't deserve you,' I told Malik, "'whose lips closed over his teeth. "'Why would he not rip me open and finish this? "'Of all the princes of the Odad, "'you could have done worse than letting him live. "'Aisha had not been unkind. "'He would have had his father spare the sal. "'He asked for me, mutilated woman that I was. "'And he had been gentle. "'He kissed my father on each cheek before we left.' How had he deserved to be torn apart, to be lost in this city with only me to mourn him? Neither of us deserved you, I said. Malik rose and walked into the temple shade, leaving the sun to brand my shoulders. Soon even the sun would be gentle, and the world would surrender to stars. Ancha, I said, least beloved among gods you'll stand with me when the warriors arrive won't you ansha looked back into the temple with his ears up listening for something I could not hear then he turned and smiled at me a dumb dog look as always may god make you enough I said and took hold of Nashira's reins I did not sleep I counted how many fingers spans the moon moved against the sky I looked for familiar constellations and found Adhara, the maidens, Shadir, the breast, Al Danab, al Kavari, the tail of the dog. What names had they carried as men? Ancha waited with me, looking to the stars with a sad noise in his throat. Were they your kinsmen? I asked. Did they run from my people once? "'were they watching for the Odad to set my people to flight. "'I'll beg you or Malik for help. "'But the stars have nothing to say to me.' "'Ancha put his paws on my leg "'and pushed his nose between my thighs, and I struck him. "'He yelped and leapt away, and I leapt to my feet, "'brandishing the nearest thing to me, the skin of wine. "'What?' I yelled. "'If your grandfather's grandfathers were men once, "'you should know better than my family how I feel.' "'Why should you mock me? "'Why put your head there?' "'I threw the wineskin, "'and the cork at the neck burst out. "'Wine spilled like blood before his claws. "'Have I mocked you for being a wolf? "'The city for its walls? "'The stars for their white eyes? "'If you care anything for that, "'I charge you. "'Help me!' "'And then, by God, I swear, "'a star detached itself "'and fell from the sky.' A howl went up, and I think the star howled with it. Then a great roar shook the earth. I threw myself to the dirt. I ask forgiveness of Almighty God. There is no God but God. The howling did not stop, but multiplied. My mind raced with the religious rubayat, and Ancha took my wrist in his teeth, pulling me into the city. The streets clattered as though the buildings had stood and ran with me. We came to the temple. The falling star had struck it, and it burned red, the wooden pillars and the lamp oil, and Aisha's body with its fire-starting stones. I yelled and ran toward the blaze, but Ancha bit my dress and made me fall. On my hands and knees I looked at the fire, the temple falling into it. I saw Malik circling the fire, and one by one other wolves joined him. I counted four, then ten. "'Then I stopped counting as they surrounded the fire "'and howled like mourners. "'Of course, like mourners at a funeral. "'The city and the stars and the wolves were Aisha's kinsmen, "'and they had made his pyre. "'And I, who was only his wife, "'bowed to a different god and prayed. "'Men from Odad did not come at noon.' They pushed their camels and arrived when the sun sat like a fist on the horizon, riding through the gates and down the roads to the still-burning temple. They'd seen the starfall. They were three men, soldiers all, with the knotted belts of the Odad, with pulwars in their hands. The foremost was familiar, but I could not place his name. Aisha, your prince is dead, I said, and I have tried to bury him They would not let me say that the city had instead. The foremost barked, Then you have killed him, and hefted his sword. What had I to lose? Your prince was taken by your gods, I said, and stepped back toward the pyre. Perhaps I should have thrown myself on it. If there is justice in your blood, then take my life in recompense. I was born the prince of Sal. "'Your prince would have spared my people.' "'Your blood is not as rich as his,' the foremost said. "'I recognised him now, Aisha's cousin. "'He had the same eyes, though crueler. "'Look at your gods,' I said, pointing to the pyre. "'Your city and wolves and the star, fallen from the sky.' "'Aisha's cousin spurred his camel with a shout.' I turned my face to the sky, where the sun was climbing. I closed my eyes, and my vision swam with red. There is no god but God, I said, and I will go to God. I did not expect my God to save me. Aisha's cousin raised his sword. I could hear the noise of his sleeve, see its shadow through the red in my eyes. I wondered if they would leave me for Ancha to eat.
1: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com heat
2: perhaps it would put flesh on his ribs i felt a body pressed to my legs my eyes opened to see the pulwar falling and i heard aisha's cousin scream and malik had coursed around the burial mound and torn the cousin from his mount "'Ancha pushed onto my shins, and I dropped to my knees to hold him. "'The wolves coursed in, baying. "'The soldiers shied and dropped their pool "'scrambled down from Camelback, hands up in entreaty to their gods. "'All glories to God, there is—' "'Aisha's cousin kicked out and lay still as Malik's teeth found his throat. "'The soldiers cowered and bowed, "'and as the sun broke from the horizon's arms, "'Ancha licked my face, my throat— my lips as though we were kinsmen. Under the eyes of God, the self-same God who had changed them, I could allow that we might be. The end.
3: I'm going to be honest here. This story made me very sad. Not that sad is necessarily a bad thing when it's caused by something so beautiful. Thank you, Anne, for that. And now on to our second story. It was written by two people, Benjamin Rosenbaum and David Ackett, and it's narrated for us today by David himself. It's called Stray, and it grabbed me right from the first line. As you know, I love it when authors narrate their own stories, so I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Benjamin Rosenbaum's fiction has appeared in many fine venues. It has been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, Sturgeon, Locus and BSFA Awards. His stories have been animated, you can check out the link on our website, awarded Best Animated Short at SXSW and translated into over 20 languages. After seven years of living in Basel, Switzerland, he moved back to Washington, D.C. just four days before this episode airs. You can visit his website at BenjaminRosenbaum.com David Ackert writes science fiction when he isn't running his e-learning company. Before turning to entrepreneurship, he was a professional actor and documentary producer with roles on shows like Bones, Monk, The West Wing, Six Feet Under and NYPD Blue. He currently resides in California with his wife, Rebecca. He's also a kick-ass narrator, as you're about to hear. And here it is.
0: By David Ackert and Benjamin Rosenbaum She'd found him by the side of the road. Ivan, who had been prince of the immortals, lying in long grass. Ivan, against whose knees weeping kings had laid their cheeks, who had collected popes, khans, prophets, martyrs, minstrels, whores, revolutionaries, poets, anarchists, and industrial magnates, who could send armies into the sea with a movement of his hand. She'd stopped her Model T where he lay by the side of the road. He was shell shocked, marooned at the end of one kind of life, an empty carapace, soul dry. There were a million drifters and oakies and ruined men cluttering the gutters of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's America, and Muriel had taken him for a white man at first, Colored doctor's daughter stopping for what looked like a white hobo. The wild danger of that. On that improbable fulcrum, his life had turned. He'd told her what he was. She was mortal, of course she was afraid. But she'd listened. At the end of that long, mad tale, she'd gotten up from her cedar kitchen table, cleared the teacups, washed them in the sink, and dried her hands. "'I believe you,' she'd said." and some strange sweet leviathan had moved through the dark water within him. He'd studied the grain of the polished cedar wood, not meeting her eyes. She was like a glass he was afraid of dropping. But even without looking, every creak of the floorboards, every clink of the dishes, told him, Stay. The wedding had been a long Sunday in June. The church was bright, with thick white paint over the boards. It seated forty. Squeezed together on pine benches, two rows of -of out-of-town relatives and Muriel's father's old patients had to stand in the back. There was potato salad and coleslaw and grits and greens on the benches outside, the rich smell of the barbecue, the smoke from the grill, mosquitoes dancing in the afternoon light. Muriel smiling and crying and laughing. With Muriel set into the center of his world like a jewel, Ivan was home. When she touched his hand... His enemies became God's wounded children, his centuries of pain and crime, a fireside tale to wonder at. In her embrace, Ivan's bitter knowledge was refuted. He was a fool in a garden. Without her, the world was a desert of evil beings. And he was full of fear, full of fear, that she would go. Aunt Gertrude was saying, "'No, no, no, the Monroes, from the other side of the family!' "'You know, I think they are in Kansas. Very respectable, very respectable people. "'Well, let me tell you this, child. "'I knew that man was perfect for Muriel before she told me he was family. "'The moment I laid eyes on him, I did "'The women fluttered about Ivan and fussed at him. "'The men tried their jokes and stories out on him. "'He nodded and laughed and watched what their bodies told each other. "'Yes, he wasn't out of town, strange. His past unknown. "'Drifter, some said. The kind you want to keep on moving past your town.' But that kind settled down sometimes. Now look at how hard he worked at the mill, when there was work. And she was so happy. Look how happy she was. And you know that's what Muriel needed to be satisfied, someone with an air of strangeness. Like this green-eyed, ageless second cousin, who had probably been in the Great War. And he hadn't pulled any of his puppeteer's strings, not one. All on their own, they had chosen him. Except little Wallace. Little Wallace was polite. He complimented Muriel's dress, and he told the men the one about the sailor and the Dutchman. But to Ivan, the man's thoughts were as loud as a siren. How had this stranger, this high-yellow second cousin with city manners and slippery ways, won Muriel? Little Wallace was strong and good-looking and a steady day-shift man at the mill, and he was from around here. Sure, he was dark, but he couldn't believe that all Muriel won was a light-skinned man. After ten years of patient and chivalrous wooing, he had a right to the heart of the doctor's daughter. He couldn't fathom how the stranger had gone by him. All through the reception, Little Wallace's eyes tracked across Ivan's face, hands, clothes, looking for a weakness. Ivan squirmed. It would be so easy to shift the cadence of his voice to match Little Wallace's, to hold his shoulders in a certain way that would remind Little Wallace of his dead brother, to be silent at the right moment, then say the words Little Wallace was thinking, so that Little Wallace would feel suddenly an unreasonable rush of affection for him, would grin, shake his head ruefully, give up his desire for Muriel, and love Ivan. Ivan felt like a cripple, like a man trying to feed himself with a fork held in his toes. And he was afraid. Eventually, Little Wallace would find something out of place. What if he found out enough to hate and fear Ivan, to turn these people against him? Part of Ivan seethed with rage that any human could look at him with those suspicious eyes. How good it would feel to turn that resentment and suspicion in an instant to adoration. But if Ivan was going to be human, to be here, he would have to leave the puppeteer's strings alone. Ivan had been sitting on a picnic bench in the churchyard, smearing his last piece of cornbread into the cooling dabs of gravy when little Wallace approached. You smoke. Ivan blinked up at him. What was this? I have, he said. He watched the resentment and mistrust brewing in the mortal, calculating its trajectory, aching to banish it. Good, Little Wallace said, and pressed something small, square, and cold into Ivan's hand, then nodded and walked away. Ivan looked at the lighter, and up at Little Wallace's retreating back, and in it, the decision simple and sweet that Muriel deserved to be happy. A shiver raced through Ivan's body. He thought, This human has surprised me. This human has surprised me. Ivan's heart beat large within him, and he looked up at Muriel in her white dress, swinging a niece in slow circles in the air. How can this be? And then Ivan answered himself, Because in ten thousand years, this is what you have never seen. What happens. What they choose. If only you leave them alone. There were moments when he suddenly felt lost in this new life. Sitting by the pond with little Wallace, a checkerboard between them, throwing bread at the ducks. His heart would abruptly begin to race, and he would think, What am I doing here? I'm wasting time. There is something terribly important I must do. And first of all, I must take this human, make sure he is mine, under my control, safe. He'd squeeze his eyes shut and wait for the feeling to pass. Or he'd be in a church pew singing David's psalms and be overcome with a memory. Walking through a walled city to the court of a hill-country half-nomad potentate. Asses braying in the evening, a crowd of slaves falling onto their bellies before him. Scowling at the princes and lords in disgust. This one too passive. This one low and mean. This one dissolute. None of them souls he'd want pressed close to him. And then... "'turning to see the hard eyes and wild grin of the minstrel boy "'sitting in the corner with a harp in his goat-herd's hands, thinking, "'Ah, yes, you. "'On you I will build an empire and a path to God. "'Whatever you were before, now you are mine. "'Now you are the arrow that pierces heaven. "'And seeing the yearning begin in the boy's eyes, "'the yearning that would never end and that only Ivan could fulfill. "'And in the middle of the mill floor... A fifty-pound sack of flour on one shoulder, Ivan would stop. Remembering the shadow the roach cast, after he'd feasted on a hundred centuries of human devotion and need, when he was full of power and empty of fear, he'd forced his way past the last door of dream. And beyond the door, where he'd expected answers and angels, in that terrible light, he'd seen a roach skittering across a wall. And he'd known that that automaton... That empty, dead machine creeping on and on and on over the bodies of the dead. That insect was Ivan. He'd burned his castle, burned his library of relics, the jade knife that killed this one, the lock of that one's hair, abandoned his living prizes to madness. He'd vanished into a Europe descending into hell, walked through fields of corpses amidst the whistling of shells, on dusty roads by the tinkling and bleating of starving goats, stared at the blue walls of the sanatorium, seeing the eyes of all those he'd taken, a wall of eyes in darkness, years which were all one long moment of terror and rage and shame before he'd crossed the Atlantic. Now when it came upon him, he shouldered the bag and moved his feet, one, then the other, Watched the men at their work of stacking. Looked at each one, whispering their names. That's Henry. That's Roy. That's Little Wallace. Thought of Muriel waiting at home. Of ham and collared greens. Coffee. Checkers. Lucky strikes. The eyes still watched him from their wall. Ivan loved positioning the checkers. Sacrificing one to save another. Cornering. Crowning. Collecting. He loved pretending to make a stupid mistake, giving his last piece to Little Wallace with a show of effort and disappointment, and if Ivan kept his eyes carefully on the ducks in the pond and hummed a song from the radio silently to himself, sometimes he could distract himself enough that Little Wallace's moves would actually surprise him. The sun was touching the horizon now. Little Wallace finished his smoke and handed the lighter back to Ivan. How's married life? Can't complain, Ivan said and looked over at Little Wallace. The question was guileless, friendly, but Ivan felt uneasy. I guess you're all going to be working on children now, Little Wallace said with an easy smile, his eyes on the lake. Blood rushed to Ivan's face, and he turned away. He closed his eyes and remembered Muriel crying in the kitchen. Shush, she'd said, pushing him away. Shush, Ivan. Yes, I knew. I know what life I chose. Now you just let me be. You let me be. Her cheeks glistening the bedroom door slamming. And he could make her laugh again, make her happy again, instantly, so easily. He'd closed his eyes, knowing where that road led. A madman in an empty palace, a lock of hair and a ribbon, burning. Ivan heard little Wallace shift in his chair. So there you are, you bastard, Ivan thought. You were right all along. You are the right one for Muriel. You could have given her a real life, a real family. I can only give her a parody. He opened his eyes and saw, in Little Wallace's, only compassion. And that was too much for Ivan to bear. He pushed himself out of his chair and headed for the woods. Little Wallace said something. Ivan kept walking. He didn't speak, he didn't gesture, he didn't trust what he might do to Little Wallace if he did. Ivan pissed against a tree, buttoned up, and walked deeper into the woods, toward the abandoned graveyard at its heart. He slowed his heartbeat and watched the shadows among the leaves. Then... At the graveyard's edge, he saw the girl. She had dirty blonde hair and a dress stitched from old calico rags. She was about eleven years old. She knelt in the dirt, her eyes closed, framed in the sun's last light filtering green through the trees. She was praying. Her lips moved, clumsy, honest. There were tears on her cheeks. Ivan felt her prayer like a beam piercing through the veil that veil that had been like a wall of stone for him. That door he had opened at such cost was like a cobweb to her. She was whispering in God's ear. Ivan shifted his posture to become a white man, made himself calm, comforting. He knelt by her and put his hand on her shoulder. She opened her eyes, but she was not startled. She smiled at him. "'I'm Ivan. What's your name?' "'Sarah,' said the little girl. She bit her lip.' The question she was expecting was, what are you doing out in these woods alone? Instead, he asked, what are you praying for? Sarah drew a deep and shuddering breath in, but she didn't cry. I live with my sick grandma. When she dies, I'll be alone. Ain't nobody else to take me in, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. God's going to send someone. Ivan stroked his hand across her hair. This girl's eyes were a speckled blue. And yet their shape was so familiar. Where had he seen them before? He wondered if a little manipulation and a good cause might be permitted him. Surely he could arrange for a family of whites to take her in. Maybe he could ask Muriel to bend their rules. Maybe... There was a crunch of boots on leaves in the forest behind him. Ivan? Little Wallace said. Ivan jumped up. Damn! Damn! Damn, he'd been lost in the little girl's eyes. Sarah looked wildly around. Little Wallace stared at them and frowned. They were both looking at him, and there was no time. Maybe he could have crafted a way to look what would have set them both at ease. In the old days, when he was powerful, but he was so tired now, and he couldn't risk losing his new home. So he looked as little Wallace expected him to. Negro. The girl screamed. Oh my god! she shouted. She stumbled back against a gravestone and grabbed at her hair where Ivan had touched it. You're a nigger! Oh my god! You're you're gonna... Little Wallace hissed in a breath, and in it Ivan heard their future. The girl running, crying, found on the road, her imagination feverish. Torches, guns, dogs, crosses of fire. Little Wallace's feet kicking in the air, kicking, finding no purchase, nowhere to stand. Sarah drew another breath to scream, and... Ivan took her. She ran to him and collapsed into his arms, buried her face against his stomach, sobbing. Ivan lifted her up gently, nested her face against his neck. For little Wallace's benefit, he said, "'Shush now, little miss. You know no one gonna hurt you here. We're decent folk here. No one gonna treat you with any disrespect. Come now, Ivan's gonna take you back to your home.' And when he looked up into little Wallace's eyes, suspicion and fear were fading. Little Wallace blinked and smiled uneasily and let a breath out. His eyes said, "'You handled that well. I hope.' Ivan nodded and walked back toward the pond. Little Wallace stood behind him, uncertain whether to follow, and Ivan said, I'll see you tomorrow, brother. The brown duck quacked at him by the side of the pond, wanting bread. But he had no bread left. Sarah's little body was warm and light against his. He leaned his head back a little to look in her eyes. She would follow him anywhere. She didn't care if he was white or black. He was her sent angel. Ivan felt the sting of tears. Could it be different this time? What if there was no shaping, no manipulation, no harvesting? What if he gardened her soul, not for himself, but for her? She was his now, very well, he would be hers. His heart was racing, he felt her total attention, the silence in her mind, the way the collected clear themselves away to make room for the master's will, and it sickened him. He could cherish her like a daughter— Would it bring her back to herself? He'd freed prizes before, abandoned them to collapse into madness. Not this time. Too late to turn back. He steeled himself. This time there would be only love. A father's love. He put Sarah on her feet as they approached the porch steps. She leaned in toward him, inhaled the scent of him as it breezed off his shirt, his jacket, his skin. He looked down at her, scratching his jaw, and opened the door. "'Muriel?' he called in, escorting the girl inside. He sat Sarah down at the kitchen table and scooped generous curls of ice cream into a bowl. He heard Muriel coming down the stairs as he handed Sarah a spoon. Muriel stopped when she saw the girl. She had not expected a third person in the house. The two of them locked eyes. "'This is our new friend Sarah,' Ivan said. "'Hello, Sarah,' Muriel nodded, a nod of extreme politeness, a nod in which no one could find any insolence at all. Her spine was knotted tense. She looked around the room at the chairs, wondering if she should sit down. Smiled broadly. Tried not to wonder where this girl's people were, if they were looking for her, what they would do if they found her here. Trying to trust Ivan, just a little girl eating ice cream, Ivan saw Muriel tell herself, trying not to think of torches and dogs. Sarah shrunk back a little. She glanced at Ivan, looking for some cue or instruction. She found it in his expression and put down the spoon. I don't mean to be any bother, ma'am. Your husband was kind enough to help me after I took a fall on the road. He kept saying nice things about you, so we thought I might like to meet you's all. Sarah sparkled at her hostess. Her smile was warm and innocent, smudged with vanilla. Oh, Muriel said, relaxing a little. Of course. She stepped forward and opened the napkin drawer. Well, you're certainly welcome here. Sarah flicked a look back at Ivan. He smiled to reassure her. Well done, little one. We will convince my Muriel. She needs a little time for these fears of hers. Fears from the world beyond this house. They don't belong in this house anymore. They don't matter now. Sarah stroked her chin, mock serious. Now, if I had to guess, I'd say you made this delicious ice cream yourself. Am I right, ma'am? Muriel laughed and turned back to the girl. Oh, yes, and it's kind of you to... She stopped and looked at Ivan. He realized he was stroking his chin in exactly the same way and jerked his hand from his face. Muriel handed the girl a checkered napkin. Sarah, would you excuse us for a minute? Sarah did not move, not until Ivan dismissed her. Then she collected her bowl, flashed a jealous glance in Muriel's direction, and went out to the porch. Muriel waited until she heard the screen door shut. Ivan, what in heaven's name is going on here? I'm sorry, Muriel, he said. Maybe Muriel hadn't believed Ivan's stories until now, not all the way. She'd listened attentively to all he told her about what he was, what he had been, while she fell in love with him. But for her, it was just a bad old life he'd led, as if she'd married a man who'd fought his way up from being a back-alley drunk. She'd never thought too much about the people he'd left behind. "'You're sorry? I just wanted to talk to her, Muriel. I was curious. And then she was in a bad way, and I thought we could help her.' He gritted his teeth with the effort of leaving alone the tension knotting the muscles in Muriel's neck, the panic in her eyes. A mortal man would soothe her, wouldn't he? Little Wallace would soothe her. But where was the line? Did he err in keeping his face flat? His movements drained of their power to unravel her fear. She turned her face away. Little Wallace came up and I had to be Negro again. The child panicked, so I... I had to... How could you? Muriel whispered. Muriel, it ain't ain't like that. I don't want a prize or a tool. It's... It was just... The girl's about to be orphaned. We could... "'She needs us.' "'You promised me, Ivan,' Muriel whispered. "'It burnt like a bullet through Ivan's heart. "'Muriel, I know it was wrong, but it's done. "'We can do this with love, Muriel, as a family.' "'She whipped around to face him. "'Ivan, how can you be what you are and be such a fool? "'Look in that little white girl's eyes. "'Look at how she looks at me. "'That's not a daughter, Ivan. "'That's a slave. "'Is that what you think I want?' "'It would be so easy, so easy.' "'Oh, Ivan,' she would say. "'You're right. "'I'm just shocked as all. "'But that poor little girl. "'Bring her back in. "'Let's make this work.' "'And then he'd have lost her. "'He'd have two slaves.' "'This is what I am, Muriel,' he hissed. "'Should I just abandon her? "'I'm responsible for her.' "'Muriel walked to the sink and held on to it, seeking purchase. "'You're responsible to me too, Ivan. "'You chose me too. "'You said i do.' She wiped at the corner of her eye a few times as if something was stuck there. So what then? Are we going to run away from my home and family? Set up a new life for you and your white daughter with me as the maid? She leaned forward at him, her face flushed dark as wine, her voice shaking. Or are you just going to change everybody so they don't mind any that she's white or so they don't know no more? Or are you just going to work some of your tricks on Aunt Gertrude and Little Wallace and the preacher and the police? Are we all going to just end up as your trained puppies? He stood up from his chair, his hands at his sides. He put the ice cream spoon down on the table. If the others of his kind had been there, they would have heard volumes and the clatter of that spoon. Muriel just looked at him. So he said, I can never give you what you want. Muriel burst out crying. That surprised him, and for a moment he felt a little surge of terror from an ancient part of him. What was he losing that mortals started surprising him? He hadn't been paying attention. It had been easy to see them clearly in the old days, like dangling string above a kitten, knowing how the kitten would jump. Now he'd fallen into a mysterious country. He put his arms around her, and she bowed to push her forehead into his shoulder. You fool. You fool, she sobbed. I don't need no baby. I just want you. Like a fist, some kind of joy or sadness forced its way from Ivan's chest, up through his throat, and out through his face. Its passage was sudden and unexpected, and Ivan sighed. He did not know who he was anymore. They held each other. Her tears cooled his shoulder, and he could feel the tremors dancing through her. And then he tasted his own tears, unbidden, cool on his cheeks. ''Ivan,'' Muriel said in a throaty whisper, You tell me straight now. I don't want your good intentions. I want the truth. Is there any hope for that little girl? Can you undo what you did? It was safe here, in Muriel's arms, in this safe place. He thought about the plan he'd made on the walk back home, and he could smell its stink of pride, the pride of princes. Muriel felt it in his silence, and she stiffened. You mortals, he said, the words muddy in his throat. You walk around with this huge emptiness in you, like wanting back into the womb. You think we'll fill it. Once you get that hunger, you don't let go. You'll die for us, but you won't leave us. Maybe I can make her forget, but the hunger stays. And if you keep her here, or we go off with her? She shook her head. Or you go off with her alone? Is she gonna get better? I don't know." Muriel pulled away. "'Good Lord, Ivan! Guess!' He looked at his hands. "'I think she'll be something like a child, and something like a prize, and maybe that'll twist her up.' He could feel his cheeks get hot. "'No. She won't get better. And I'll have to be—I'll have to be what I was.' Muriel shook. Her eyes closed. She put her hands over her face. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, she said. Ivan said nothing. She wiped her tears on her apron. I can't give you up willingly, she said. God forgive me, I can't make you stay. And I can't follow you into that. I know, he said. He thought of Aunt Gertrude, of Little Wallace, of Henry, of the preacher, of Bob Pratchett, the white foreman at the mill. How long before he damned them all? He was a fool. She saw it in his face. Ivan, listen to me. You gotta leave folks alone. She reached a hand out to touch his cheek. And you can. I know you can. You aren't any demon, Ivan. You're just a sinner like everybody else. He kissed her and took her close. He squeezed his eyes shut and smelled the salt of her tears mixed in with dish soap and sweat and vanilla and the spice of cedarwood. Then he blew his nose into the paper napkin and wiped the sweat from his brow. She looked away from him, down at the table, as he got up and left the kitchen. Sarah was sitting dutifully in the twilight, looking out into the dark oval of water and the first eager stars that blinked above it. She heard the screen door swing open and turned, bright with anticipation. It's time to go home, Ivan said. She shook her head, unsure if she had heard him correctly. He offered his hand and she took it. Her fingers were cold from the outside air and the ice cream inside her. They walked through the ragged grass over the hill. In her face was a wolfish joy. She was soaking him in with her eyes. Somewhere behind that need was that lonely little girl, brave enough to pray in a lonely cemetery. His chest throbbed with pain. Her lips shivered and her teeth clicked together. He wanted to give her his jacket, but how could she forget him then? They reached the road. He let go her hand. He stepped back from her and slouched, scratching his head. He spoke in a new tone that was neither paternal nor comforting, but like that green-eyed nigger who lived in the house by the pond. Well, I hope you enjoyed your dessert. Now run along before anyone sees you hang around here. He saw the arrow of panic as it stabbed through her. Where was her Ivan? Where was her angel sent? Who was this man? No... No, she said, looking around her. Her head was foggy. She wiped at her eyes. She looked at him. Some harmless nigger standing with her under the cold night sky. She stepped away. What? Ivan forced himself to turn and wave respectfully, to walk away. When he glanced back, Sarah was hugging herself. Her thoughts burned the air. A moment ago, she had been saved. She had had a father and a home. Had she been with Jesus? No. She'd eaten with some niggers. Shame leapt, burning to her cheeks. She pushed past a fence post and began to run. God had seen her, seen her naked soul, seen everything there was of her to love, and abandoned her. He did not love her at all. The lost soul fell into the night. Coldness made a fist in Ivan's belly as he crossed over the hill to his house. He pulled his jacket around him and stared ahead. Muriel had turned the porch light on so that he would not stumble.
3: Cracking story, isn't it? Thanks to Benjamin and David for letting us use it. And that brings us to the end of another show. This week's episode is in fact dedicated to Laurence Santoro. As most of you know, the host of our sister podcast, Tales to Terrify, died suddenly last week. It's been a week, and we still all miss him terribly. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but no changing it or selling it. If you are feeling generous, please feel free to donate a little something. The buttons are easy to find on our website, and everything goes into the pot to keep the District of Wonders going, bringing you great fiction every week, no matter what genre you love. I hope you enjoyed the show, despite the dodgy sound quality. I'll be here next week with more fantastic fantasy. Until then, take it easy, everyone. Keep that beverage close at hand. And keep smiling. Life goes on. Bye.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website,
0: Mit navn er Anders
2: Morgenthal. Og overfor mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og for det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi er alt af alle de der podcast, og forklarer mod der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulige ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af.
3: Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjovt og med at have den her vidunderlige